0: the mortality in the juvenile stages was much lower when you had a mixed diet compared to a single pest diet. So it seems that these are general disparities, but they also have benefits from feeding on multiple
1: pests or prey. This is Talking Bugs, where I interview a different entomologist each episode, learn about how they got into entomology, and discuss some of their most recent research. And my name is Erfan Vafai, I'm an Extension Program Specialist through the Department of Entomology at Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Herben Messelink from Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Dr. Messelink is a Special Professor in Biological Pest Control and Greenhouse Production Systems and a Senior Research Entomologist. According to ResearchGate, He has over 170 research items, over 150 publications, 25,000 reads of his works, and over 1,781 citations of his works. He wants to express that a lot of what he's going to talk about today is not solely his own work, but a result of some close collaborations with really good colleagues and other collaborators. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are joined by Dr. Gerben Messelink or Gerben, and he is from Wageningen University in Wageningen in uh, the Netherlands. Currently, you are there as, as an entomologist who focuses on biological control. And before we kind of get into kind of what is your current research, where did you study and kind of what got you interested in entomology?
0: Well, I am... Um... As a child, I always liked uh, nature and, uh, uh, and hiking. And uh, my, my dad really loves uh, gardening. So that's somehow I was getting interested in biology, I guess. And um, uh, and after my... my uh, Yeah, when, when I started my study, I was really interested in, in plant breeding. So I went to Wageningen University to study plant breeding. And while doing this, uh, I discovered that uh, yeah, diseases and pests are also very interesting. And so I switched a bit to uh, crop protection and ecological crop protection. Um, And within crop protection, I started to like entomology more and more. So that's the way how it more or less uh, started. And yeah, after finishing my studies, I I started to work in horticulture, uh, to work on plant diagnostics, to identify diseases and pests, uh, crows that had problems with these pests. And after a while, I went to uh, a
1: research station
0: uh, to do re- to start really to work on research. In
1: uh, and was this all in the in the Netherlands or or kind of traveling around? Yeah, this was
0: all in the Netherlands. Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. And was there a specific uh, professor or specific moment that really kind of inspired you into entomology? Um,
0: yeah, I think there are many people that inspired me. But at the university, uh, there was Professor Joop van Lenteren. Um, he's a well-known entomologist and really promoted also biological control and, and doing research in biocontrol. So he has been very important. Uh, but also at the research station, I think I was I really blessed uh, having people around me that were pioneering in biocontrol in greenhouse in the greenhouse sector. Uh, One of them was Pierre Ramakers. uh, uh, Yeah, one of the scientists that discovered um, how to use predatory mites for thrips control. And and this was really a breakthrough in biocontrol because uh, it was one of the most important and still is one of the most important pests. And uh, so he found a good way to control them with predatory mites. Yeah, and there are more people. uh, um, I got involved in the IOBC, the International Organization for Biological biological control. And I still remember my first meeting conference uh, that was in Canada, Vancouver. Um, and that was for me amazing to discover that there are worldwide so many people working on biocontrol, and so many uh, interesting talks. Uh, so that really yeah, motivated me more and more to continue with biocontrol to see the possibilities. And yeah, that was really great.
1: Yeah, I think those conferences are a, a great opportunity to uh, just really get that inspiration and meet and network. I think that's one of the the, the best things about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had, I had the privilege of attending IOBC, um, was it in 2016 or 17 that we had there in, in uh, the Niagara Falls region in Canada. And uh, it was really neat to be able to meet you and many of the others there um, that are specifically working in biological control and that type of research and then you know during my uh during my kind of path to entomology you know, there's been times where uh, certainly has been challenging you know has there ever been a time where it's been really challenging for you and you've kind of almost questioned your your career choice in biological control um,
0: well uh well at university I had my doubts because i uh did the one thesis that was more in phytopathology but it was very um fundamental uh and and i I started to to doubt about uh, my motivation to continue with that. Because where do I get my motivation to work on something that is really fundamental? Uh, So you can be very interested in something just because you want to understand how systems work or how things work. But uh, I find out that that for me, that's not enough. I I really like the applied side of work. And that's why uh, I... I started to work on, on bio, well, in my, in the in, my first job at the Institute, I actually started as a phytopathologist, but at a certain moment there was a vacancy for an entomologist. I had to work on biocontrol and I started my work there on biological control. And since then, I actually never doubted it. I was, it's very stimulating to see that, that the work you do, the research you do uh, gets, be applied by crows and it's actually working also so um yeah yeah, of course sometimes in research or science you get frustrated because uh, sometimes you're you're studying things and eventually it doesn't work but um, the nice thing about my job now i think that i have uh, many different projects and um, there's always some projects that go well and and where you have good results and and yeah, especially those projects where you have an interaction also with growers that are also really enthusiastic about uh, using biocontrol and, and staying away from pesticides, that's very stimulating, at least what I found stimulating. So that's, yeah, I actually had never my, uh, uh, my doubts further. I think I, it's, a, it's a wonderful job.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, that kind of solidified it there. I think for me as well was kind of the, that applied research. I'm very much the same way is that applied research. And it's really interesting to learn about how it seems like your passion for biological control was developed through it being both applied and also seeing those results and how it's impacting others essentially. And so now you have kind of four main, uh, focus areas of, of, of research, um, so uh, the four are finding new commercial natural enemy candidates, uh, another one standing army approach, uh, food web interactions, uh, integrated pest management, and biodiversity. And clearly I can't count cause that was actually five. <laughs> so you have five main focus areas. Um, and so starting off with the very first one, finding new commercial natural enemy candidates. Um, so for the listeners that, that may, may not be familiar, There are companies that mass produce beneficial predators, uh, specifically for usually greenhouse uh, use, uh, although there are some that may work well outdoors as well. But they're able to mass produce these natural enemies. They might be predatory mites or parasitic wasps uh, that will help suppress uh, the pest. And there's a lot of work that goes into actually finding some of these natural enemies. So, so what are some of the things that y'all have to consider uh, when you're going about finding new candidate natural enemies? That really
0: depends a bit on the, on the strategy and the crop. But I think, yeah, if you look back, yeah, there is now a huge industry producing these natural enemies. And if you look back uh, in the beginning, it was very much focused on specialists, the most effective natural enemies. So I think what's available now on the market are also very effective natural enemies that still are very valuable. Like uh, one of the first uh, phytocytes, Pesimilis, is a very effective predator of spider mites, and we still use it. Um, But yeah, uh, still, I think there is still a need to look for new candidates, new species of natural enemies to complement the system. And that's, uh, that's, in that way, it's a new approach. because now, I think there are already so many uh, species available, uh, products on the market. If you are a grower and you grow a crop, you have multiple pests, you have to build a whole ecosystem in your greenhouse. And you release you can release all kinds of species, but which makes it complex. And I think at a certain moment, you should look more and more as the whole system, how species also complement each other, and what are the interactions. So. Um, by looking at that, I think you should look at specific criteria. Um, so look at the system. What are the problems? If you, for example, look at biological control in sweet pepper, uh, currently there is a real challenge is the control of aphids because they are developing so fast. Although we have many species that are very effective, I think we can still look for new candidates that have some um, added value. And then you have to look at uh, specific criteria, for example, uh, species that do better at lower temperatures or higher temperatures or early in the season or late on in the season. Um, And also uh, you can look at uh, the position in the crop, the habitat preference. Uh, Some prefer to to be active top of the plant, some are a bit lower active in the plant. So in that way, uh, species can complement or they uh, attack different stages of the pest or yeah, all kind of things. So that's important. And, uh, and another point is, I think, um, and that's a bit also the, the second uh, theme, the standing army approach. Over the years, I think biocontrol has moved a bit from uh, uh, very uh, yeah, augmentative responding to the presence of pests. Like once you observe, you detect the pests are present in your crop, you start releasing natural enemies to control them. But that's, that's very difficult because you have to be really on time. And as soon as you are a bit too late, the control might not succeed. And then, um, it, and then the control also depends very much on the quality of the natural enemies you release at that moment. So if something goes wrong with transport or whatever, and the quality has gone down, then it's very risky because you're even more too late with controlling them. So th- that's... Uh, I think in addition to those specialist naturaries that can be very effective, we switch more or we are more and more focused on uh, generalists that uh, can establish in crops also uh, before the pests arrive, because they are able to feed also on alternative food sources or alternative prey. So if in your studies you are focused on generalists and how to establish them in crops, then there are other criteria important, of course than those for the the specialist, because then you're maybe focused on the most effective, the most fast development. Um, But for generalists, it's much more like, okay, how well do they establish in the crop? And some of them are plant feeding. Can they survive on 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 the food the plant is provided, like the pollen and the nectar and the plant saps? Yeah, and things like this. So the, and and how yeah how broad are they working and how well do they develop on alternative food sources you can provide, so there are many uh, criteria you can look at.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, that particular strategy is is um, was quite critical when we are looking at a biological control in poinsettias, where whitefly populations can increase very rapidly. The eggs and immatures are hard to see with the naked eye. And so, having say predatory mites established a little bit early that can feed on those eggs and first instar yeah. nymphs before those whitefly populations really start to increase too rapidly uh, is kind of a, a potential uh, yeah. key to really effective yeah. and or economic biological control in, in that potato production. So that kind of takes us uh, into you know, there's been a lot of questions as well of like you know, so we spoke about how. Traditionally, maybe specialists were were a little bit more commonly used, uh, and now generalists are becoming also very important. How important is natural enemy diversity? You know, the question also arises. You know, should we just be putting way more natural enemies in there to try and simulate the natural system? And that kind of brings us to the yeah. third point of food web interactions.
0: Yeah, I think diversity in general is, uh, and there there are also many studies showing this uh, that diversity in general general is positive for biocontrol. So um, and that's uh, because what I, what I explained uh, species can really complement each other in being active in different times of the year or different moments of the day uh, or they have a difference in their preference for the habitats or uh, there can be synergy uh, synergy between species but it's not always it's not that simple that just uh, Increase your diversity as much as possible and it's working because there might also be negative interactions. And we know that generalist predators, yeah, they, they feed also on other natural enemies. This is called intracult predation, which doesn't need to be bad always, but in some cases it can disrupt by control. Um, but there's also yeah what you call hyperpredation. So in intracult predation, the one predator feeds on the other predator, they share the same pest. So in that way, if it kills also another natural, natural enemy, but it also kills the pest of that enemy, of that natural enemy, it's not that bad because biocontrol can still be good. But if you have a natural enemy that feeds on another natural enemy without feeding on the pest of that natural enemy, it can really disrupt control. And for example, one, there's one example in greenhouses, um, where you can control aphids with a predatory mites, *Aphidolatus*, aphidomitsa, which is a very effective specialist predator. But the eggs are predated by uh, predatory mites that you need for the control of thrips in your crop. And, uh, but predatory mites do not feed on aphids. So once you have many predatory mites and they all feed on the eggs of this aphid predator, it can really disrupt your control, and this is a serious problem. So mm-hmm. that's something you have to deal with when you try to control several pests at the same time.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's that's one of the keys. Is kind of I think you explained um, one of the concepts there of niche partitioning, right? right? That they're they're using different resources; they're not directly competing. Is one example of how how these predators might be able to actually uh collectively provide better suppression than than just a single one yeah, alone. And so uh, you know, we always get that question of, you know, is it better just to put in more and it's always kind of depends on there's good diversity and bad diversity, uh, I guess in a way <laughs> when we're talking about pest suppression specifically. Um and so now going on to your your fourth one which is integrated pest management, um you know how established is biological control in commercial greenhouse production in the Netherlands, and how does that differ between fruit and vegetable production versus ornamentals or floriculture? Yeah,
0: culture? I think it's already for decades very well established in the greenhouse vegetable uh, industry. Already in the 80s, it went to 100%. Wow, uh, all growers IPM at least. Huh? Uh, so all growers use I. I guess I'm quite sure almost all every greenhouse vegetable grower. Is using biocontrol, but for the ornamentals, it's different. Uh, depending also on the crop, and the problem is that uh, the the levels of damage you can allow are much lower.
1: So that's more challenging. Because you're you're selling the whole plant. I mean, you're selling it for aesthetics. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. For most, uh, for some cut flower flowers, not. But for uh, most uh, ornamental crops, this is the case. So it's more challenging. And um, but still, it's also growing in ornamental crops simply because there are sometimes no alternatives. There's a ban on many pesticides and very strict regulations, so there is sometimes no alternative. And we they need to switch to uh, to biocontrol.
1: I mean that's pretty impressive uh, because here, yeah, I'd say in southern U.S., um, you know, there are some operations, fruit and vegetable operations that might use natural enemies. Um, Uh, In terms of ornamentals, I only know two, and that's because, you know, I was, we were working with them to integrate it into their systems. Um, So it's very uncommon. And I I think a part of it is like you explained, I mean, it's it's quite a bit more challenging in ornamentals. And so there's still a bit of uh, learning that we need to do in our area in terms of how to effectively implement uh, biological control in in those, in that greenhouse production. Which kind of brings us to, to the last focus, which is kind of biodiversity. And I kind of interpreted this as um, being maybe a little bit different than, say, food food web interactions. Because you're, you're almost talking about conservation biological control. Is that right? You're talking about kind of the habitat around production to promote natural enemies.
0: Right. Yeah. And this is something uh, rather new, but uh, it's a hot topic. Well, there's a lot of research going on about... Uh, functional biodiversity in general, um, for in outdoor crops, but also uh, many initiatives to, to promote biodiversity in general for protecting bees or pollinators, birds, and also in greenhouse areas, this increase of, of biodiversity is going on. And um, this gives to some crows, for some crows, there's a lot of concerns about yeah, the potential risk of this biodiversity. Because they, they are afraid of uh, migrations of pests from outside to their greenhouses. Right. So they, they rather prefer this uh, short lawn management uh, than, than biodiversity. But yeah. uh, there are also many growers that are uh, very interested. And they see the, the potential of, of promoting biological control uh, and reducing pests outside the greenhouse. But also, we know from many studies that there is quite some migration from natural enemies from outside inside greenhouses. Hmm. And this is uh, still a rather unexplored area, I think. And uh, we are currently working on this in some projects to see what types of vegetation uh, promote pest control and can also contribute to pest control inside greenhouses. And you would expect this, uh, this is something uh, more for the Mediterranean countries or warmer climates. uh, because they're Greenhouses are much more open and there's much more interaction. But we know that even in um, high-tech class houses that seem to be quite closed, uh, there still is quite some interaction. Sometimes uh, spontaneously uh, parasitism of caterpillars or aphids. Yeah, and and, uh, the interesting thing, I think, is to promote uh, biological control of pests that are not easy to control with commercial products. Because for... For example, caterpillars. There are many species of parasitoids known outside that can parasitize caterpillars and also control this pest. But for producing them on a commercial base is quite challenging. It's very expensive, also. Hmm. So so far, uh, this has never. I know the companies tried, but uh, when you start to calculate the cost per parasitoid, it's simply too expensive wow. to produce it and release it. Uh, so for those natural enemies, I think it's very interesting to see how you can promote uh, their natural occurrence and, and increase this influx in greenhouses.
1: Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's that'll be very interesting because that'll help, you know, if we can establish systems that do promote natural enemies, yeah, you can drastically reduce the cost, hopefully, of biological control and create a more... Uh, kind of like a holistic system. So you're not just like, you know, throwing natural enemies in, but you're also promoting the ones that you have naturally occurring nearby. All right. So that kind of brings us, you know, you're saying, uh, you know, talking about doing some research in that area. And I look forward to learning about that. And let's talk uh, now about some some of your recent research that was published. Um, this is by Lehman et al. in insect science. And it's called the omnivorous predator, Macrolophus pygmaeus, a good candidate for the control of both greenhouse whitefly and poinsettia thrips on Gerbera plants. And so kind of just starting off, just some basic background on uh, what are some of the common plants that greenhouse whiteflies and echinothrips, or commonly referred to as poinsettia thrips, uh, actually feed on? Well,
0: greenhouse whiteflies have a broad range of host plants, uh, both in vegetables and ornamentals, in tomato, but also in Gerbera plants, uh, many host plants. And then you, you have the greenhouse fly, but also re- related to that tobacco flies that can also occur. But uh, I think uh, tomato is a very important uh, host plant and uh, cucumber, for example. The Ponsettia trips is a rather new species, invasive pest. I believe it came from North America. <laughs> <laughs> I know we have them here. <laughs> yeah, Like also Western flower thrips uh, and many. Uh, yeah, that, that's in, in the greenhouse, that greenhouse sector, we have many exotic thrip species that somehow came uh, by transport of plant material, I guess, someday, and they, they all establish, most of yeah. them establish uh, in the greenhouses. So this is, um, yeah, also a pest, new pest we have for quite some years now, but it causes some serious problems in uh, sweet pepper, but also many ornamental plants, like roses. They're quite easily to control in, uh, in the crop like uh, pepper. Yeah, in some ornamental crops, they are more challenging. Also because some natural enemies that can be used uh, do not establish in those crops. Like in mm. roses, we know that aureus species are not establishing well, uh, but those can be very effective on, on setia trips.
1: Oh, interesting. And so and so this um, M-, M. pygmaeus or macrolophus pygmaeus is almost like an assassin bug, right? It's a it's a myriad. Uh, and so it has a sucking, piercing mouth part that can feed both on insects and on the plants. And so what makes it kind of a promising natural enemy for these two particular
0: prey? Yeah, the promising thing is that uh, it's a real generalist, actually an omnivore. So what you already explained, also plant feeding, and that's a huge benefit because- because of that, they, they feed also on pollen, on nectar, uh, and they can establish also at low pest densities. And that's make it make, makes them very interesting. But they're also, they also have a wide range of pests they can feed on. And not only wildlife and thrips, there also aphids, uh, also caterpillar eggs, um, so uh, spider mites. So they are real generalists. And... Um, yeah, I think that having such generalists in your cropping system can really give a kind of uh, resilience uh, in general against pests. They might not be the most effective always because there are all kinds of interactions. They might be distracted sometimes by a specific pest or um, yeah, because they feed on multiple pests, some pests might escape temporarily. That's, that's uh, a risk. But in general, I think... Um, yeah, they, they can be very useful to reduce pest pressure.
1: So in the case of this study now, what were some of the, like, what were the main objectives and how y'all investigated? Yeah, those? the main
0: objective was just to find a good solution uh, for biological control for these major two pest species. But at the same time, I'm also interested in the, um, in the more dynamics that can uh, occur when you introduce a generalist predator and you have two pests. And there's a lot of fundamental literature about this because you have this we call this apparent competition it seems like these two pests are competing but they are interacting because they share the same predator and uh, in the long term it's known from these uh, models that this is positive for biocontrol because the equilibrium pest densities are in the long term lower compared to uh, one predator and one prey so that's positive, but on the short term, you can also have, um, yeah, some other uh, dynamics. And, and uh, if there's a small preference, maybe for one pest, uh, the other prey or pest might escape temporarily. Um, but usually this is only short term because with two pests, you have also higher densities at the end, and also a better control of those pests. But, uh, so I was also interested in this, uh, in these uh, dynamics. And um, so this is a system with a generalist and omnivore and two pests in ornamental crop. We more or less studied the same system with a predatory mite uh, with white flies and thrips. And there we found, and this, this was with Amblisae surschii in cucumber. And there we found a uh, very interesting result that in the, the combination of the pests, we found that the predatory mite was actually developing faster. Mm-hmm. And so it seems, and that's what we also found, that the mortality in the juvenile stages was much lower when you had a mixed diet compared to a single pest diet. So it seems that, yeah, these are general predators, but they also have benefits from feeding on multiple pests or prey, because it apparently, also uh complements their diet, or are they develop better on a, on a mixed diet?
1: Yeah, it seems like maybe their, their generalist habit is actually a result of of their nutritional requirements, perhaps, and so giving that mixed right. diet yeah. might might actually be yeah. uh, quite beneficial yeah
0: so this is all, all, always my recommendation to the crow is just uh, release some extra pests and it will go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how does yeah, how does that go over? <laughs> Is that when they start no, kicking you out? No, but it's an
0: interesting thought. Uh, <laughs> it's about the maxim, mechanism, but but uh, also pest diversity. So not only natural enemy diversity, but also pest diversity can have some benefits. And um, knowing this, of course, you can also think of other solutions, like providing supplemental food sources or alternative food sources that maybe also in some way complement the diet of predator. So. Yeah. So these in this specific study, uh, uh, well, and um, we were also interested in these dynamics on the long term and short term, uh, whether there's maybe an escape or not.
1: Right. So you investigated these dynamics through it seems like three kind of um, distinct uh, kind of research uh, trials or setups. Let's say you had some small box container assays where you actually determine the consumption rate by the predator in the presence of single or both natural enemies you had a Y-tube olfactometer. So that's basically, I mean, just like imagine a single tube and it splits into a Y, into a little fork. And you have, uh, sometimes you have, you know, one of each natural enemy or you might have the natural enemy or nothing there. And that's kind of a way to detect. You got the predator in the little tunnel uh, as a way of determining if they can, you know, find uh, either a find the prey and or have a preference for finding the prey. So it's really for um, determining, a kind of odor preference by the by predator or whatever insect you're working with. And the last one y- y'all did was some greenhouse cage experiments, which is relatively longer term, about 10 weeks. Uh, and you're looking at prey population change if you're, you have either single prey or both prey with that predator. Uh, or no predator. So, again, just to see, like, you know, are these uh, two prey competing with each other without the predator? And then what does that competition look like? Right? Is it apparent? Yeah. Do you have apparent competition in the presence of that predator? And so, kind of, what were what, what would you say was some of the takeaway that y'all kind of got from this that uh, may, may have helped really with our understanding of how Pygmaeus could be used in biological?
0: Control? Well, it, it, I think it shows that um, it's not such a problem to have two pests. In both cases, uh, it seems to be a small, um, yeah, a little bit of an escape from uh, the Pontellia trips in the beginning, but uh, at the end, most pests are controlled very well in, in all situations. Um, and also the white tube experiments shows that they have a clear preference for plants infested by wildflies compared to clean plants. But we did not find this effect uh, when you, when we added uh, thrips on plants. So apparently they were not able to distinguish plants infested by thrips versus clean plants. So they had not no clear preference for plants with thrips. Um, so you might think that well, in a large greenhouse where there are spots, certain plants with thrips, they might not be able to find those plants with thrips, but uh, having more prey present uh, on all plants, a little bit of white flies everywhere, also helps maybe uh, the predators to establish in in the whole greenhouse crop on all plants. So that helps also to prevent that some uh, pests maybe escape. So I think in that way, it helps you to develop a strategy like like trying to get a, a nice distribution of predators on every plant. And it shows that uh, once you have realized this, you can have a very effective control. And well, for wildflies, we have quite some alternative. We have parasitoids, we have uh, specialist predatory bugs, cryptolemus. But for the Eugenia the, the Ponsensia thrips, it's quite challenging to control this, uh, this pest in these ornamental plants. And well, we know that predatory mites that are usually used for thrips control do not, they date on, on this on trips, but for some reason, you never get a very good control. And we hmm. still do not understand what is the exact reason for that? What are the mechanisms behind? But um, with these four we at least found a very effective control. And uh, we also found that they, they prey on, on different stages, also the larvae, but also the adults.
1: Hmm.
0: So yeah, that's, that's positive for this crop. Is only one big but and that's the potential crop damage and we know this is an omnivore which is a benefit because it feeds on multiple pests it can also uh, feeds a little bit from the plant from the pollen so it it can easily establish a population but we found in other trials uh, follow-up trials on these trials that when you really have high densities in your crop you can have some serious damage to the flowers hmm. Uh-oh. This, of course, is a risk. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's also trying to find a kind of a balance to keep the densities of the predator uh, low enough to prevent this damage, but still high enough to get a good control of your past.
1: Is Now, is macrolophus pygmaeus difficult to control? If, if its populations really start to heighten, is it something that can be managed simply? or
0: It's quite simple, yeah. And we actually found that like spraying against powdery mildew, which is a uh, pathogen commonly occurring, already reduces the densities a lot. Oh, wow. So if you so you, you don't need uh, very uh, strong pesticides um, to reduce it a bit. But uh, yeah, we always continue finding new solutions. And uh, knowing this, some growth think that this is too risky because it the damage uh, can also uh, differ per cultivar. Some cold are very vulnerable, some are not, so you cannot really predict what kind of levels are acceptable, right? Oh, Um, makes it complex. So, yeah, anyway, it it also helped us to continue doing research. So now we continue looking for new candidates, generalist predators that do well. And we also uh, did studies in tomato with these omnivores, uh, mirrored omnivores, and there. It, they're also very interesting. Um, it's like, uh, like uh, yeah, those omnivores. It's a kind of a range between uh, plant feeding and prey feeding. And we know in Southern Europe, um, some of these mirid predators are used for biocontrol, but they can also give quite some damage. And one of them is Nasoniaocerus. And uh, well, this predator also uh, is now more and more present in Dutch greenhouse or in Northern Europe and it causes some damage so crows consider it more like a pest than a predator oh, it's actually wow. it, uh, an omnivore so in this crop uh, yeah we studied how you can you, how you can reduce maybe this more plant feeding omnivore uh, with other omnivores that are more prey feeding yeah and how this interaction can maybe be reduced uh, so so they're still with these omnivores. There are, there are many benefits. They can establish easy. They can control multiple pests. But the risk is always in some crops. There can be some damage. And and now, yeah, we we and also other groups are studying more and more. Like how how can you manage this damage? Can you maybe somehow change the plant also to reduce this damage? Introduce mm-hmm. other omnivores that suppress the more damaging omnivore.
1: And this is all specific to omnivores because, you know, your specialists, like your parasitic wasps won't cause any damage to the plants. or your predatory mites won't cause any damage to the plants. And so it's this, these omnivores that have the added benefit of being able to establish without the pest, then also in the wrong balance can, can become the pest themselves. Yeah. But, but uh, if you succeed with an omnivore, it can really be the basic
0: of your whole biocontrol program. Yeah. I think like in pepper, we have a very stable system with an omnivore, aureus species, aureus North America incidiosus in Europe, aureus levicae, that feeds from the pollen. So it, it is able to build up populations in the crop. And together with mites, they are a very stable system from the wow. beginning. And in tomato crops, uh, we have the same system with omnivores like macrolophus, dicyphus, other other. Uh, but you're right. In some cases, they give some damage, but there are maybe ways to to reduce it.
1: And so, you know, you had mentioned in, in, in this article as well, we see that, um, you know, you get good suppression, right? We get very good control, let's say, of both the, the thrips and of the whiteflies. Now, this kind of raises the question of what is considered sufficient control in ornamentals? Like kind of what is, have y'all established thresholds or how many white flies are allowed to be on Gerberas or how many thrips can be on Gerberas. What is the, do y'all have a threshold for those things? Yeah.
0: There's no single threshold. It uh, depends also on the grower. Right. Yeah. The grower decides what he accepts. It can depend on the cultivar? It can depend on the crop? Um, like the benefit of, of uh, Gerbera is that you cut only the flowers. You sell only the flowers. So there are many leaves And actually, this is quite unique for an ornamental crop. There are many leaves that you still can allow some damage because you're not selling the the leaves to the whole plant. You just sell the flowers. And if you lose some plants because there are too many pests on those plants, I think uh, that's acceptable. The plants need to recover for a while and then they come back. But if, of course, you lose half of your greenhouse, (laughs) that's a different story. But I... Yeah, it also depends really on the grower and also the, the consultants of the grower
1: hmm. that give
0: advice. I see uh, it's funny because uh, many young consultants that just start with a job in IPM advice, they are, more very, they are often quite sooner concerned about increases of pests. So they sooner uh, advise to, to, to correct with pesticides. Yeah. Whereas uh, some experienced consultants, they know, okay, accept some damage, but biocontrol will will uh, win the game, and you will get it under control. Just you need a little bit of patience.
1: So I think that's I think that's a very natural response for someone new. You'd be very risk averse. You know, you don't want to yeah. you don't want to mess up. <laughs> and yeah. spraying pesticides is relatively a lower risk. You know, but it can be obviously more costly or not a good long-term strategy. Uh, and so, you know, whereas, you know, the weathered consultant has seen pest populations go up and down with, with biological controls, so less, a little less trigger happy, let's say, and, and you know, a little bit more yeah. pensive about how, how to respond. Uh, and, you know, I'd asked about that, um, those thresholds specifically because, uh, you know, when we tried to establish biological control here, one of the major concerns was that ornamentals have zero pest tolerance. And when you read in the literature, you know, often zero or none is is used. Uh, But what we found was it's, you know, not, uh, it's much higher than zero. You know, we found on average about 73 white fly nymphs per poinsettia at the retailer. And this was including at like a florist that the florist actually goes and selects these poinsettias from the greenhouse grower herself. So, you know, we kind of decided it's a little bit more of an undetectable, you know, as long as it's not discernible, obviously by the person buying it or by the grower or inspectors, that is essentially the threshold. Whereas, you know, thresholds in a lot of the large field, agricultural crops, corn or sorghum or wheat, those are all based on, you know, what pest density would reduce the yields, you know? So it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit more arithmetic, whereas ours is a little bit more subjective, uh, to actually find, find that, that specific threshold. So what are some of the future work that y'all are looking at uh, to determine the efficacy of either this myriad or, or are you looking at other myriads at managing uh, these two particular pests?
0: Well, uh, with the myriads, I'm also interested in how we can manage their behavior on plants by changing plant quality. So that can be plant nutrition, or, but there are also some fungi growing into plants. We call them endophytes. Yeah, that's also something that can change really the, the, the plant quality for the omnivore. And we observed already some time something very interesting with these omnivores. If we uh, put them on plants that were treated with the endophytes, inoculated with these endophytes, we found a better control of wild compared to plants without these endophytes. Hmm. So, and if you put them on plants with only the endophyte without any pests, we, we found a higher mortality. So it seems that yeah this these endophytes they might excrete maybe some metabolites or induce a plant response that is affecting the omnivore when it feeds on the plants. and but omnivores are flexible in their feeding choice so they they can decide to switch from more plant feeding to more prey feeding so how can you, so this this opens opportunities to manage the system and make plants maybe yeah, Uh, increase pest control by omnivores by reducing plant quality. Uh, This is an interesting topic, but yeah, there are many other studies we are uh, continuing with. The Ponsetia thrips is still a challenge, but also we have some new thrip species, invasive thrip species, that are present in greenhouses, and we hardly know anything about them. So we first need to go to the basic, understand their biology and behavior and see w- uh, what are the options for biocontrol and try to develop yeah, new systems. So that's, that's also the, of course, for Crow is not so nice, but for us, uh, if you work on biocontrol, it's interesting that we're never done with the job. There are right. always new pests coming. Uh, yeah. the, the system is always changing. So there is no, no uh, IPM strategy uh, finished. It's always dynamic always new pests appearing, new predators coming, new natural enemies you find.
1: I think that's what's kind of made it uh, so challenging, you know, when I, when I try, try considering writing an IPM manual for our greenhouse growers. You know, it's just that it's changing always so rapidly that it's kind of like, where, where do you even start? And by the time you finish, is it already outdated? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, there, and there's, you know, I really like that multi-prong approach. There's, I think um, a lot of people are always looking for the silver bullet, uh, whether it be with pesticides or with, be with biological control, and there's, there rarely ever is, or I should say there never really is. And so looking at things like endophytes as well, or, or plant nutrition uh, as a part of that system as well, I think will be a, a very important part of uh, how we can uh, effectively use biological control to suppress pests. So I wanna take this time to thank you so much for uh, sharing your research with me today and taking the time to, to talk about kind of what you're passionate about and, and some of the future work y'all are doing. So thank you so much, Dr. Messalink.
0: Yeah, thank you.